Hi, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a general pediatrician in Tucson, Arizona with a large transgender medicine practice. And I'm Lizette. My pronouns are she, her, her. I'm a small business owner, advocate, and the mother of a 13-year-old transgender child. And this is season two of... I Stand By You. With Lizette. And Drew. Together, we talk about allyship. And this season, because we're all feeling very isolated, we're going to focus a little more on community, building community. And showing up for one another. Welcome. Welcome. Hello. Hi, Drew. How are you Happy Easter. It is Easter today. It is um, Easter. Although it's many other things as well that are not Easter. Um, so today we talked about, we're actually going to open with, um, each of us has a story about ourselves we wanted to tell that will tie in very well to today's guest. Um, so who do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You go first and then I'll go second. It's so embarrassing. Okay, so, and Melissa, our guest, will be, it's one of my new co-workers. This is a very early impression she's going to have of me. Don't judge us harshly. Oh, my goodness. So, the, um, when I was a second year medical student, um, I was talking to um, a very good friend of mine. And uh, they, we were talking about periods, and I didn't know very much about them. <laughs> um, and I asked her, I said, so doesn't it hurt when you take the pad off? And she said, no, pads are uncomfortable, but it doesn't really hurt. And I was like, but, and how does it say stuck on? Like <laughs> with the hair and you're having a period. And she looks at me and she goes, Drew, what side do you think that the tape goes on? (laughs) Because until that very moment, I was under the impression that the tab, the the tape on a pad stuck to your skin. Tape side up. Tape side up. (laughs) Because that would seem to be how it would be held on. And since I was A, raised with only brothers... And B, um, had, you know, a classy early 80s sex ed program. Uh-huh. Um, that's what I thought. Because we had never, we, you know, we obviously we didn't need to learn about periods when the girls went to learn about those. Why right, would we right, right. know about periods? It might hurt us to know that. <laughs> Yours is now, not that, as I cringe. believe you also have a funny story. Oh my gosh, mine was so cringe. So then Drew tells this story and I was like, oh, well, Drew, mine's worse. Um, so I went to Catholic school and I just want to preface that my high school had really good sex ed. So I wasn't in high school yet. I was still in junior high and I was on a swim team. I swam for a very long time competitively and my mom refused to allow me to wear tampons because she was like, you will lose your virginity. It was the whole thing. So we had, um, (laughs) we had our big like end of swim season um competition like our i forget what they're called now but 
anyways, it was like our big, um, like finals. Right. And I had my period. And so one of my friend's moms was like, I had like this bulky pad on my bathing suit. And I was so embarrassed that I couldn't even focus on like my races. And she's like, Lizette, here, go put this on. And so she gave me a tampon, but I didn't know how to put it on. I also didn't know like that the urethra and the pee hole, like that the urethra Ah. was separate from my vaginal opening, right? So I was like trying to push in this tampon, I think in the wrong hole. (laughs) And then I didn't get it in. So I just sort of let it dangle and it didn't catch anything clearly because it was put in incorrectly. And then Drew was like, you thought you weren't a virgin anymore. And I was like, well, I was worried (laughs) that I had just destroyed my private, um, my vagina. And then I realized all these years later, I don't know if you could even attempt to get in your urethra, but it was really painful. And I just know that I did it wrong. (laughs) And no one taught me how to put in a tampon. So that is my forever shame moment of like, you know, being at swim finals. And being on a period. <laughs> and, and those are our introductory stories. So oh, I'm guessing it's gonna live on forever. A lot of you are thinking, this Melissa, what are they gonna talk to us about? <laughs> so would My you like to introduce so yourself? <laughs> sure. And I I also feel like this is clearly a need for a future podcast is just people telling period stories. I mean, it's so <laughs> People of all genders and experiences, because we all have them. Oh. Uh, so, sure. Yeah. My name is Melissa Heckman. I use she and they pronouns. I am a clinical social worker. I'm a psychotherapist and also a trained clinical sex therapist. I work at Trans Health Northampton in Northampton, Massachusetts. And um, the majority of my professional life up until this new position that I have with Drew um, has been as mostly an adolescent and young adult therapist working with trans and gender nonconforming, gender diverse um, adolescents and young adults and their families in a community mental health setting in Springfield, Massachusetts. Thank you well, for being my, here. That's my basics. I'm so excited to be here. I'm, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. And talking about sex education is, I mean, I, I feel like I should say, Sex education is not the primary focus of my work, and it is something in my graduate program, there is a whole version of the master's degree that was for sex educators. So there are people who are so passionate. This is their whole life. And I also realized that this is something I, I could get passionate about and spend my whole life on because it is something, yeah. I mean, I, like even good sex education isn't, in my opinion, good enough. And I had very good, I think, sex education. I knew way more about sex than any of my peers. And it still didn't it wasn't what I think is best, right? As a, yeah. as a queer, non-binary adult person, like none of the things that I do in my day-to-day life were really taught to me, except menstruate, I guess, were really taught to me in sex education. Not that I menstruate every well. day, but you know what I mean. So, <laughs> day-to-day. Wow. Day-to-day, every day. All the time. <laughs> that would be the worst kind of, kind of like existence, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. So we're here in Arizona, and it's most of the world it's 2020 but sometimes we feel like our sex ed here isn't even close i'm just curious in your experience of talking to some of these kids and teens in you know massachusetts in 2020 now like what sort of things are they learning how are they learning stuff so one of the things so 
not they're not learning things in school. I think sex education in school has gotten much worse than it was when I was. So I had sex education in 1984 was the first like school-based sex education I got and then and that was like here's a period and you might get pimples that was basically what we learned and then when I was a sophomore in high school by which point people in my class had already had babies so you know there was this whole window of no sex education and I still think like I got pretty decent sex education from my public school I was raised Unitarian Universalist which we can talk about how amazing their sex education is yeah so I was very lucky in that respect. But the, I, I found out that they're still in schools. They're either teaching them almost nothing. Like they draw the moose picture of the uterus and fallopian tubes and then the external penis and testicle scrotum picture, but nothing external for uh, like people who have vulvas and nothing internal for people who have penises. Right. Um, and they're still showing the scary photographs of genitals with herpes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like tertiary syphilis, like these really scary STI pictures. They're still showing those photographs to young people, which I find so upsetting. Um, cause it's such a scare tactic and it's so sex negative. It just drives me up a wall. We used to um, get yeah. the slideshow before or after lunch. And so oh, it was always like, right. it was always like, which one would I prefer? Like, do I want to eat first or, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, and then you know it's coming. So can you really eat? No. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no. Oh. But I feel like I feel like kids now learn so much. I mean, learn quote unquote so much about sex quote unquote from pornography. I mean, yeah. they've all seen pornography well before they get any sex education in their schools, and the, the what they're learning from those two different areas are so distinct that that they I think are almost not connected kids because mm-hmm. they just seem like such different worlds right it's the it's the moose or it's pornography and I also well, think I think the thing that I as a mom you know of a soon-to-be 14 year old really care most about is that I just remembered feeling so dumb for not mm-hmm. understanding my body that day right like it wasn't mm-hmm. even so much um it was just so embarrassing to not really know your body and to not know how to use something that all these people used, you know, and, and, um, it was, I just remember that day, like, you know, the day that you just know you felt embarrassed all day. That was my day. And I feel like so many kids, I, I want my child to feel like at least that they have some anatomical awareness of what their body does and like what, what their body is like. And so, and I feel like when they, when you mentioned sex ed, there's so much, um, there's so much kind of like obsession with this idea of talking about intercourse when really we're mm-hmm. talking about like whole body health, right? Like mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. how to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And well, and also like your sense of who you are, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these are the things I think about that I wish I had been taught, which is like, what feels good to your body? And what do you do when somebody's doing something that doesn't feel good to your body? How do you mm-hmm. talk about that? And how do you talk about what does feel good? And how do you figure out what does feel good? Like I was never taught that um, like assigned female people had orgasms. I was taught all about assigned male orgasms and how to avoid them. But nothing about female <laughs> orgasms. Like, it's like, oh wait, I have orgasms too, right? But it was all about it was, you know, big on sperm right. and periods. We get periods, boys get orgasms. That's what I learned. <laughs> sperm and, and that is not a fair trade. And pregnancy, oh, no, pregnancy, really pregnancy. Yeah. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Well, and now we're seeing that. So we 
for in a lot of places around here, we finally have won the battle to get our trans kids into sex ed classes mm. that correspond to their gender identity. Mm. But now they have even less information mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. bodies mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they are being taught about parts that most likely have nothing to do with their experience. Mm. Um, and it's this, and and then on top of that is the, when we start talking about body parts, it is really hard for some of these kids mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of their relationship with their bodies. And I'm, I'm wondering, have you ever seen easier ways to talk to, <laughs> you know, some of the both, both tweens and teens and all about their bodies in ways that don't harm them? Mm. And I think, I think there's like two different, parts here, right? There's like a one-on-one conversation versus a conversation with a room full of people. I think in a one-on-one conversation, it's a little easier because you can come to some agreement ahead of time about what language feels the least upsetting, right? My conversations with like my clients, for example, always, it's always like, what is okay language for you, for me to use? Do you have language you'd like me to use for your body parts? Usually with me, and maybe it's just because I'm their therapist, they're like, just use the most clinical like biology-based, like vulva, vagina, penis, scrotum, testicles, and that's cool. But some people have language that they prefer that feels more comfortable for them and less dysphoric. Um, And I think even just having people be able to decide and ask for and give consent to the language you use Mm -hmm. makes a big difference. But that's also a one-on-one, right? If you've got a class full of 20 fourth graders or whatever, that you can't alter it for every person. Um, There are some people who are doing really exciting to me, and this is, I think, would take a sea change in a lot of communities, but exciting to me work around sex education that is not divided up by sex assigned at birth or gender identity. Mm -hmm. That is throughout the education lifespan. Like, let's start talking about this in kindergarten, first grade. Like, this is science, right? It's biology. Why do we wait until people are almost pubescent to talk about body parts that we have our whole lives? Mm -hmm. Why do we... Why do we make it something that has to be, I was thinking about this idea that, you know, the boys and the girls get separated and it's, I I assumed, I've always assumed it's based in this cisgender heterosexual idea, but also isn't that weird? Like you were saying, Drew, like, because you were assigned male, you don't need to know anything about periods. And because you were assigned female, you don't need to know anything about, I mean, apparently I do need to know about boys orgasms, but right, like everybody should know about periods. And what if the language was people, some people have periods. You don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. People who have uteruses are usually people who have periods, but you don't know who has a uterus, right? Right. And what if that was the language? Some people have testicles, but you don't know who has has testicles by looking at somebody you don't know. So the person next to you may or may not have testicles, but this is what testicles do. This is what a uterus does. And if it was taken away from this personal, like girls have uteruses, so they have periods, but to just like, that's what some people have. And this is what they do. Wouldn't that kind of change it? Because it takes it away from people looking at you and thinking they know what you've got going on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And keep, keeps it personal. Mm-hmm. Well, I and think even, it, yeah, it also sorry, I've been really, no, no, it totally, I, no, no, I want to hear what you're thinking, but I was, th- I just made me think it would totally change also some of the dynamics in some adult relationships, which have mixed genital relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and like just knowledge about each other's bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that too, that it's not, it's like, 
I don't know. I think that that I've always assumed that people also pay attention to the other, like, you know, in fourth grade, I went, quote unquote, with the girls and learned, like I said, about periods and pimples. And then in fifth grade, I went, quote unquote, with the girls to learn about basically like the nocturnal ejaculation and how boys just want to have sex with you and get you pregnant. <laughs> and that's like what I remember. There were just some really great 70s movies that yes. we watched. Um, <laughs> yeah, we probably all watched the same ones. Uh-huh. I remember a really sad girl looking at her pimples in yeah. the mirror. That's what I remember. Yeah, but yeah, and and but I don't think people necessarily, if they get that, are you really paying attention? Are you understanding that, like, when you're adult, even if you don't have mixed genital relationships, like, do you have people in your family? Do you have children? Do you share a bathroom with somebody who might have a period? Like, there's good things to know, right? You definitely are going to work with people who have periods. It's like good to know stuff about other people's bodies, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Generally, generally well, speaking. From a, well, just from a to bird's be eye view, right. not necessarily. Thoughtful. Right. No, no, not, a, not, right. Right. not in an individual way. No, not an individual day-to-day -day way, for sure. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, I am on uh, in a couple of gay dads groups, and the number of dads who are like, oh my gosh, my daughter is about to start her period I think and I have no idea what to talk how to talk about this mm -hmm. yeah. which it really is it because I can tell you so in those classes when you were learning first of all periods and pimples and then stay away from sperm what we learned was these are the names of your body parts sometimes they may act in this way and then the second one was take a damn shower because you <laughs> smell. But seriously, there was so little about sex and mm -hmm. I guess probably use a condom and stay away from people who are, who are dirty or something like that, mm -hmm. because that mm -hmm. was the sort of stuff that was regularly said. Um, and it's frustrating. I mean, it really, mm -hmm. the amount that I, I honestly did not learn until medical school. Mm -hmm. about reproductive anatomy is just shocking to me now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I there are things I did not learn about my own anatomy until I went to graduate school. I was 38 when I started my graduate program and we had to we have to take a biology of sex course, which is the course I think about probably the most out of my whole training and my training was very thorough, but it was so fascinating. And I learned so much about attraction and orgasms and disability and orgasms and birth control and pheromones. And I think that was a class I might've learned it before that class, but about the Krura, I'd never learned about the Krura, which is so cool. What is it? Tell me. Right. Nobody knows if, if we were on a video, I would draw you a picture. I'm famous for these pictures. I draw them everywhere. So basically, the crura are the clitoral legs. So the clitoris is on the external part of the body, but there's this t same tissue that makes the phallus of the penis, the shaft of the penis, rather, not the phallus, the shaft of the penis. Um, when you have a clitoris, that tissue goes inside alongside the the labia, underneath the vulva, alongside mm -hmm. the labia, and down to where the vaginal opening is. And so that gets engorged. It gets swollen, and it it has, like, tons of nerve endings in it, which is why that whole area can be swollen, can be pleasurable to touch, and I think maybe has something to do with why, for some people, vaginal penetration is really yummy feeling, because mm -hmm. they're also different on everybody, right? Some, some, right? some people have ones that are further apart. Some have ones that are closer together. But that's all in, in there, providing all of this 
really exciting, like positive sexual feeling for not everybody, but a lot of people feels good. And because there's tons of nerve endings in there, I had no idea that that was a part of my anatomy. Nobody taught me that until I went to graduate school at 38. Like I knew what felt good to me, but I didn't know why. Wow. My inner Catholic is just so red right now. No, I'm not, I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I always tell Drew that I get real squeamish because I'm like, oh gosh, but I want all kids to have the ability to learn these things, like to learn about their bodies, to learn to not feel shame. I think um, when I went to public school, uh, K through five, and so I had sex ed fourth and fifth grade, and then I went to um, Catholic school. And I don't remember having any sex ed in that time until I ended up in high school again. But what I do remember is that it was a tiny class and everybody needed to like, like developmental processes were like, like whether you were making it in life, right? So like mm-hmm. who got body hair? I, I was the last one in my class to have their period. So I was like a mm-hmm. super late bloomer. I think I told Drew I was the last one to get a kiss. Um, mm-hmm. It's also embarrassing, but um, it's just embarrassing that it was so stereotypical in the ways in which girls sort of applauded or, you know, the feminine or females in the classroom sort of applauded progress. Like if like all of a sudden Uh getting your period was this thing, um, instead of it just being a natural part of what happens to certain Uh bodies. Um, and I too, I, I, I was having a conversation with my 13 year old who has been in sex ed, but again, our, our schools are like abstinence only, um, we had a really awful law in the books for a long time where they couldn't talk about diverse families or um, LGBT people. Um, and so because my son, because this classroom still divided boy and girl, he would go to the boys. And recently he told me, I really wish there was a class that would talk, teach me about my body, but teach me about my body that I'm in like I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a trans boy. My body is different. And what does that mean for me? Mm-hmm. And how will I develop? Mm-hmm. And that's missing. Um, mm-hmm. I had to sign them up for an outside course. Um, mm-hmm. And I heard our whole lives is incredible. I wish that that mm-hmm. was Amazing. something that could be modeled in the school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel? I, I mean, I don't know much about stats, but I know... Um, Drew and you probably have more stats. What do you think are the benefits to having like age appropriate, comprehensive, medically accurate sex ed in schools? What would that change for everyone? Do you know, do you know statistics on that, Drew? I I'm don't sure know statistics. I don't know mm-hmm. statistics. I, I mean, I think it would probably do things like I believe that it reduces things like the pregnancy rate. It probably mm-hmm. reduces the rate of unwanted intercourse um and coercive relationships um i don't know the numbers though Mm -hmm. i mean i'm i'm sure they're out there because i know that in i'm trying to think one of the northern european countries i want to say i think it's maybe sweden I don't want to say the wrong country, but but some of the Northern European countries have really excellent comprehensive sex education, like I think maybe better than OWL. And um, if you can get the, the videos, and I've seen some of them, and they're really impressive, and I, I'm sure that there are some statistics out there because that is part of what they do in mm-hmm. those countries. Um, and they have very matter-of-fact, straightforward sex education in all of their schools starting at a young age. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think 
obviously pregnancy rates would probably improve. But I think about with sex education, I, I think about things like consent, like you were saying, like, Mm -hmm. if I know what feels good to my body and I know what to do when it doesn't feel good, then it helps me out of situations that I think are really common for adolescents where they feel like, you know, I want to make this person happy or I don't know how to say no, or I try to say no, but then this happens. And so I guess I'll just go along with this thing that doesn't feel good. And I unfortunately see this all the time. I have a lot of clients historically who that's part of what we talk about in therapy is how to process through what happened to them in relationships where there was coercive or non-consensual sexual activity um, because people were like, well, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to stop it. Right. Right. So how how do you talk about that? I mean, I've had, I have actually had a few of my patients who've talked about how they felt like, you know, I'm, I'm trans, so it's only going to be certain people who are going to be attracted mm-hmm. to me. And so this person said yes, and so I thought that meant I had to do something with them. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you? How do we have that conversation? How do you talk about it? I mean, that happens. All, I hear that all the time, and I hear it from parents too. I've had parents say to me, "I'm worried about who's going to love my child if they're mm-hmm. transgender." Yeah. And I mean, what I always say to people is I probably have been lucky enough in my life to know more transgender people than a lot of average humans have, um, both by my, like my family, my communities that I've lived in, the work that I do. And, you know, I, I, all of like the adult trans people I know have people who love them and have often when they want them, like happy, healthy sex lives and and, you know, multiple choices. They don't just have to go with the first person who wants to be with them because there are other people out there. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also some normalization that's important. I think it's normal to feel the first time somebody is attracted to you, like, this is it, right? This is the first time somebody wants to be with me, so I'm going to be with them. And not to think about, wait, do I like this person? Do they make me feel good? Do they? What do I want from a partner? What does dating look like for me? And maybe it's not that. And we don't talk about that at all. And I, I, yeah, I think like some visibility for transgender people is going to make a difference too, right? How many trans people and gender diverse people do have happy, healthy, like love and sex lives. And I think there's still such a taboo for trans and gender diverse people to talk about sex and sexuality because it's like too much, right? It's already so much in our culture to be trans or gender diverse. And then it's too much like you got to add all the sex stuff in there. And like, we just can't handle that culturally very well. Um, but I think that's what kids need to see. I mean, it's such a change for kids to meet adult trans and gender diverse people mm-hmm. and then to hear that people are happily partnered or even like, yeah, I felt that way when I was young too. But you know what is actually true yeah. is there are, there are people who are maybe even specifically attracted to people like me. And it's not like they're just putting up with the fact that I'm trans. Maybe they really like partnering with trans people because that's true too. You know, I had to be really honest with this. My child being trans has been such a journey, I think, for my husband and I more than himself, because he he's always been right. So he's he's always been. So he's he's going to develop and grow as, as himself and not. I mean, that's his journey. But I think in terms of dealing with bias 
has been our mm. journey, right? And bias that you don't even realize that you carry. Like early mm-hmm. on, I like when you said that, will anybody ever love my child? Like I cringed because mm. I recognize that as being a societal bias against trans people. Like, oh, this mm. is such a sad thing. <laughs> and it's mm. not mm-hmm. like there should be trans joy and uh, trans totally. people are part of all communities and all families. And this isn't something that we should see as negative. Right. But because of yeah. like social conditioning and things that we're seeing legislatively and not enough visibility, that's the go to sort of mm-hmm. mode that parents get into. And um, the day that I did that really strong, wow. like, why would I ever think that he's an incredible human? Of course, someone will love him. Right. Like. There's uh-huh. no reason for someone not to. And I, I agree with you that that has more to do with like conditioning in society and seeing trans people as a part of our communities. But there's a lot of discrimination that we have to work past, I think, uh-huh. before we get there. I think, too, I agree with you. And I think, too, the, the role that media plays in that is so huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... I it's just like the way that trans people are portrayed is like so often alone, so often unpartnered, so often like seeking partnership and not finding it. Um, it's such a, or being murdered either as part of seeking partnership or seeking sexuality or making a living. Right. Yeah. Um, I think about like an example is, and, and I could say things about what happens when cisgender men play transgender women on screen, but we can shelve that for another conversation. <laughs> it's a bad thing. Yeah. And in the, I think about the movie The Danish Girl, which a lot of people saw, and the story of the woman from The Danish Girl, I can't remember her name, but she um, actually was not a, a lonely, solitary person with only her wife for support. She actually had a supportive family, Um she had her, I think her brother and her sister, she came out to them. They knew that she was a transgender woman and they were a part of her life until the end of her life. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, The Danish Girl, she's portrayed Isolated. as only having the wife mm-hmm. and it's such a burden on the wife and it's just the two of them and that is not accurate to this woman's life at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like the one detail of her life that they left out of the movie. So that is also how our media portrays trans lives as solitary and lonely. And just anything yeah. that's different, right? Like, I think, too, when you were t- when you were describing like your sex ed, I was like, that was so much like mine. This idea that yeah. that our bodies are burdensome. Right. Like Uh and not to like how bad it is to kind of understand them or like all these things that we have to deal with. And I wish that there would have been a different lens to teach me about my Uh body and Uh and how to enjoy it and keep it healthy. And, you know, and you hear these stories about, you know, we were doing a huge push here for um, age appropriate and uh, medically accurate sex ed and the stories Uh that young people shared about not understanding consent and Uh um, feeling like they had been violated, raped and or abused was terrifying. And, um, and just not having good information so that you can Uh make good choices. I Uh want my kid to feel like empowered and informed. I don't want him to feel like I did where like this conversation is so uncomfortable at times (laughs) Um, Uh or, and not, and not have to work through that even as an adult. Right. Um, and so I think, I think it's so important for, but I also think too, that's, you know, sometimes the school system and just, you know, societal structures are meant to keep you uninformed 
and disempowered, mm-hmm. right? And so, mm-hmm. um, and I think that has to do with like, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into the deeper, but you know, like there's just <laughs> other forms of oppression, right? And so mm-hmm. it's all tied in there to keep, and I think misinformation is how you oppress people um, mm-hmm. is by not giving them the information they need to feel empowered and to make good choices. What, mm-hmm. what do you, what do you find to be, have you had like school districts or schools come out or even parents say like, how can I find programs for my kids? Do you see that there's more of a need or parents wanting to have that conversation? Because the, the, the voices of parents who don't want to have that conversation are really mm-hmm. loud. So how many families yeah. and or parents or communities are you hearing? No, this is information we want and need. I mean, I do, I do hear that. And I, I mean, I've hear, heard sort of the spectrum and as a therapist and somebody who's trained in sex therapy, you know, I always offer parents, like, I think it's better for your kids to hear it from you. And I have a lot of knowledge and I'm really comfortable approaching this. And then there's also this piece as a therapist, what happens with the conversations I have with my clients are, are confidential, right? So mm-hmm. there's also this piece of like, if you want information and your parents don't want me to give it to you and they're not giving it to you, then I'm in this really difficult situation where where I've asked and they've mm-hmm. said no. And now I feel like it's very disrespectful for me to go against what they said, right? So it is very complicated, I think, as a therapist. What, what I think is true up here, um, especially in sort of the Northampton area, but in Massachusetts in general, there are a ton of Unitarians here. It's like really normal to be Unitarian in Massachusetts, which is not my, um, my history growing up Unitarian was not like a normal, typical thing. And so I think there is some knowledge about the sex education that Unitarians offer. I also will say that it, it is still a battle and I hear it less, I hear less about parents looking for that. I heard more about educators looking yeah. for that. I, mm-hmm. I will say that my sister is a fourth grade teacher and she is a very strong proponent of comprehensive sex education in her school and just battles and battles and battles to change the sex education at her school. Um, and a lot of people just don't, they're sort of like, why would we need to do that? What is wrong with it? But they have kids at their elementary school who identify as pan and transgender and queer and so she's like, obviously, like, we have a lot of different kids here, just like a range of all types of kids from all types of families and all types of identities. So we should be having sex education for all types of kids with all types of families and all types of identities. And mm-hmm. people are like, why? why? Um, and the parents don't seem to give too much pushback, um, but the, the school administration seems to. So I hear it from educators a lot that there's a need for that. Um, and then for some educators, you know, I think there's also this piece of like when adults are uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable for kids. Yeah. So if you're not someone who's comfortable talking about sex and sexuality, it's going to flavor that whole conversation. No pun intended. Yeah. So (laughs) I think that's a difficult thing too. And I also think Um, that you hit on something really important or in that parents who are seeking this out outside of the school system, that's a privilege, right? Like I have, I would have to look, have resources, pay for therapy, where, whereas low income, and I don't, I don't want to tie like just BIPOC communities. There's white people who are low income as well. Mm -hmm. Um, that Mm -hmm. don't, that then their education is going to be through the school system. And if it's Mm -hmm. not, if it's not accurate or comprehensive, they're really missing out on an opportunity on the opportunity to learn about themselves, to make Uh good choices. So it has like a societal impact as well. 
I agree. I mean, where I worked in Spring- Springfield, Massachusetts, is a, a small city that has a very large Puerto Rican population, a very large black population. Um, and it, the community that I worked within was community mental health, so um, on the lower socioeconomic status um, end of things. And, this, and I worked in schools as a therapist, but I know the schools, you know, parents are allowed to opt out. Um, there's also several different, culturally different large Pentecostal populations in the Springfield area. There's mm-hmm. Puerto Rican Pentecostal population, Black Pentecostal population, and Russian oh. Pentecostal population, which are all very different ways of being Pentecostal, I would say. Um, they're culturally quite different. So kids were would opt out of sex education, but I felt like the sex education in those schools, first of all, was still oriented with people are going to be conservative in mind, even though the parents who didn't want their children to receive sex education can say no. And it was also white people teaching primarily BIPOC kids about Mm. sex education, which I think is inherently deeply problematic um, because I think that your sexuality is is just going to be a different experience if you're a BIPOC kid um, living in a place like Springfield, let's say, where there's just like a lot of things that happen in your day-to-day life that maybe your white middle-class teachers have not experienced mm-hmm. in their day-to-day life, right? And then there's also lots of cultural different, differently opinions about, um, like, pregnancy, for example. In some communities, being pregnant at a younger age is not seen as a bad thing. Right. It's just a thing that happens. Like, okay, it happened. Great, let's just keep going. And it's not always, like, a really big problem, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, to me, it's like some families, it's like, okay, well, I was pregnant young. She's pregnant young. That's fine. Um, I made it work, she'll make it work, right? So I think there is a real problem, too. And I mean, when any teacher is, is of a totally different, like, racial, ethnic, and class background from their, the students that they teach, but especially, I think, around sex education. Wow. How, so what is the Unitarian Prayer of the Owl program? And I've heard, like, I've heard it referenced, I've heard great things, but I don't really, like, what are the themes in it that, like, even that people might be able to use at home? Well, so... I'm going to be really transparent with you that I am familiar with it because I I did some work in helping um, kind of proofread some trans-inclusive changes that were made to it, and Uh I have um, people in my family who've done it. So it's very, I mean, there's a lot of peace, and then I also, when I went through it, it was in 1980. Six, maybe. So in some ways, a very different program in 1986. Like, we watch slideshows. But I think about it now, like, we were a bunch of 12-ish-year-old kids, and we watched slideshows of different configurations of couples having sex. Mm. And it was very 1986, so we saw a heterosexual couple, a lesbian, cisgender couple, and a gay male, cisgender couple having sex. But, like... Looking back, I'm like, well, that, you know, it sort of covered the generals of each of those groups. Um, and so you were also showing, you know, slideshows of people having sex to very young minors, like 12-year-olds, you know? Yeah. Um, which is, when I think about it now, really surprising to me. Yeah. But, I mean, that's still, a part of it is still this very frank, straightforward conversation about body parts, not only what they're called, but also what do people call them? What's the slang? Like, I remember we did this, made a list of every slang word that we could think of for every body part and every sexual activity. Um, but they, our whole lives now is a, is a lifelong, so when I did it, it was AYS about your sexuality, and it was just for sort of puberty age kids. Now, our, our whole life starts, I think the youngest class is age four, and goes into older adulthood, um, 
and I think later, later old age. So it's really like lifespan comprehensive sex education. Mm. Um, and you get trained in different segments of it. So I have not yet been trained in it, although I think that I actually have a plan for trans health, but I think maybe myself and another person are going to get trained so that we can um, do some comprehensive sex education specifically for trans and gender diverse kids. But I think, I really think, so to answer your question, I think starting with like, let's have some really straightforward conversation about language and words and the words you've heard that maybe are embarrassing, but they're out there, right? Like you're not going to tell me my 12 year old child, any word for a penis that I haven't heard in my life. Right. right. So like, that kind of gets you over the hump of this, like, it's so embarrassing conversation. Um, and I, I am a big believer in, like, really frank information. Like, I think about, you know, do people really know that everybody's genitals are completely different, just like everybody's face is completely different, you know? Mm-hmm. And even if you're an identical twin, your face is still kind of different than your twin a little bit. Yeah. And that is what genitals are also, they're all different. So when people feel like their genitals should look one way or another, everybody's different, which is amazing. I mean, that's amazing. What a beautiful thing. That's cool. Um, and so I think, I think that kind of like really straightforward, like this is what things look like. This is what things are called. And then conversations too about like, like I'm saying, like what things feel good to you and how do you know? Um, and how do you learn that? And then they give you things also to come home and talk to your parents about. So parents are a big part of about programming for like kids and adolescents. So mm-hmm. part of the homework is like parents are agreeing their kids are going to come home and have these conversations with them. And that's really important too. So kids can kind of learn it outside and then also come back and, and talk with parents about it. Yeah. And I, what sort of things changed with it? Like you were talking about working on some of the ways of changes to make it more trans inclusive. What sort of changes do, do people need with their, their talks um, to make it more inclusive? I mean, I think <laughs> my biggest change, I think, would, would always be to just take away naming a, a body part as relates to a gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, to me, body parts are not, like, genitals aren't gendered, right? They're all the same tissue made in different configurations with a bunch of nerve endings. I always say to my clients, like, really, sex is just, like, taking body parts with lots of nerve endings and mushing them together until everybody feels good. Like, that's what it looks like. <laughs> I love that. And so, like, it can be a lot of different ways, right? Because there's, like, a whole area that feels good. So, like, whatever you got to do. So, I think when you start making it about girl bodies and boy bodies, that's when it stops being inclusive of not just trans and gender diverse people, but also intersex people. Like Mm -hmm. people have a lot of different bodies, right? And so there are some great books out there. Like um, this is for younger kids, but I love sex is a funny word. And I still think it could be more inclusive. Like I was just talking with my sister about this the other day, that there are no pictures of intersex genitalia in there. There's like drawings of like lots of different ways that breasts can look and lots of different ways that bulbous can look and lots of different ways that penises can look, but there don't, there aren't any that are intersex genitals, for example, and being intersex is really common. Right. So there should, that should also be part of it, but, and also no pictures that are necessarily trans or gender diverse genitals, although it depends, I suppose, on what, medical choices you're making about, you know, hormones or not hormones um, and surgeries or not surgeries. Right. But I think there's like this thing that we do where we automatically think about bodies as gender, as genders and they're not genders. They're just whatever skin sacks, right. That we live in Thank um, you that are they're that. not gendered until we gender them. Yeah. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's interesting when you were talking about too about the whole like 
Uh, I mean, the variety of ways that things can look is I remember um, I was at a talk by a um, surgeon who does um, vaginoplasty Mm. surgery. And she was talking about how there's a large number of her young people who their only exposure has been to pictures in porn. Yeah. Uh, Which apparently, now I have not seen a lot of porn with vaginas in it. Mm. Um, And so apparently a lot of things look very white. I do know that everything is now hairless because Mm. that's Mm -hmm. apparently the world now. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and because we don't want people to like their bodies and what they do too much. Yeah, um, no, no. But then also that the external um, genitalia tend to be of a fairly uniform look. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And there's very little variety, like yeah. very symmetrical vulvas. And yeah. it just, and it was incredible to me. And so she had an artist create what, um, it was based on, there's an artist who actually did something called the Wall of Penis. Wall of, which, yeah. which then featured, which was then, fe- like, the idea behind that was then in uh, that great show um, that I can't remember. But this was Wall of Vaginas. And mm-hmm. so she has this wall of all the different ways that vulvas mm-hmm. can look. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, oh. and I think it is that whole, like, I mean, okay. Lizette was almost going to go there with on all of this. Is the truth is a lot of this is rooted in the whole, I think, white supremacy idea of mm-hmm. we're going to make the whole world look exactly the same mm-hmm. in our image as we travel around and make people not like their bodies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I was gonna, yeah. what I wanted to say too about Owl. Now that you're saying that, there's a conversation. Like parents are agreeing to have a conversation at at home with their kids afterwards is like that really breeds trust right mm-hmm. like and i'm not yeah. saying like that we should we need to be sa- sharing like all of our private intimacies with our parents you know but like this right. idea no. that i can come and talk to you about something that is quote unquote through society taboo that i can come and mm-hmm. have this honest conversation the, I'm assuming that the reduction in abuse would go down, right? That you could mm-hmm. create like healthy communities where people would have at least someone that's trusted that they could mm-hmm. go say like this happened or, you know, or, or yeah. you know what I mean? Like there's a beauty yeah. in that there's a trust being built between the parent or caregiver saying, yes, you can have this conversation with me and we can learn mm-hmm. together um, in a way that's like democratized, right? If we're talking about white mm-hmm. supremacy and assimilation and all those things, like this democratizing of information, like you can have mm-hmm. information that empowers you and you can trust that I'm, I'm somebody you can speak to if you need mm-hmm. to, or you want to, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. And I think, I mean, I'm going to say with a caveat that I am a person who went to school to be a sex therapist. And so let's also be clear that perhaps there is something about me that makes me naturally curious about everybody else's sexuality. So that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> because I am. And I always have been in sex therapy school just made it worse. But I also think, you know, my parents didn't talk to me about their sexuality at all. I had no idea until I was well, well, well into adulthood, whether or not my mom didn't have sex until she was married, for example, or like how she feels about her body. I mean, I had some guesses on how she feels about her body, but I remember my mom was in the vagina monologues and which for my mom is a huge stretch, by the way, she's not, um, 
very comfortable with bodies and sexuality. Yeah. I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast, but she's not. <laughs> and <clears throat> she wrote herself a vagina monologue. That was wow. just part of like something they did for the vagina monologues. And um, she told me where to find it on her computer in case she died. And she said, I'm sure you don't want to read your mom's vagina monologue. And I was like, no, mom, I actually really do. And she thought I was joking. And I didn't know how to express to her. I think I've always had this longing to hear people tell me about their, like, what is it like to come into your body? What was it like for you to learn about sexuality? What was it like to, like, how do you feel about your genitals? And, like, you know, you've had three children. Like, what was that like? What did you feel about your body before and after? Um and I remember asking her once if my dad was the first person she had sex with, and she got so angry at me, and she that was that's private. And she said, that's private. You don't ask people questions like that. Maybe I'm rebelling by being a sex therapist. <laughs> but I just think, like, what would it be like if kids could ask their parents, and their parents could say, let me actually tell you, not in detail, not the play-by-play, but this is what it felt like, right? Like, yes. I thought I was in love with my boyfriend when I was 15. Of course, I'm looking back now, I'm not sure that was really love, but at the time, it really felt like it was right like yeah. even that is such an important piece of information that kids don't get wow yeah daniel makes fun of me because uh, okay so just <laughs> i'm growing as a human i'm gonna just throw that out. i'm growing as a human melissa, I'm, gonna, are... I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you melissa that was that the fact we're having this conversation <laughs> and i'm pretty sure she's not curled up under her dining room table right now <laughs> I really it's want to be under there. Over the last like few years that I've known her. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so hard. That's beautiful. So that's I've... beautiful. We should all be changing all the time. We yeah, be changing all the time. It's beautiful. I bought this book that was like very like uh, it was so cishet and it just didn't have body parts and it was like this is an egg and this is a sperm and then they get together and this is how baby is born. I don't even remember the name of the book. But um, this is the book that I bought and so I'm mm. reading it to Daniel and Daniel was like. But mom, like, how does the egg and the sperm get into the body? Like, how does that happen? And I was like, you married hug. <laughs> and I think I put my hands together, uh-huh. like, you know, when you pray. And I was like, yeah. you married hug. Yeah. And then, like, the sperm and the egg end up in the woman's body. And, you know, you have a baby. And Daniel was like, hmm. So then he, so we just lived with that. Like, it was a married hug for, like, two years. And then mm-hmm. he um, ended up in a classroom. One of his good friends, the parent was actually a doctor. And so um, ah. the parent was like, so the kid was like, I know how babies are born. And um, Daniel's like, tell me. And the kid was like, no, my mom says I can't. And they were sitting with the sibling. And the sibling was like, but I will, right? So the sibling <laughs> tells Daniel how babies are born. And so, and like how babies are made. And so yeah. Daniel for like three days was like, so how are babies made? And I would give the same story <laughs> about married hugs. And then the next day, how, so how? Married hugs. And then, um, and then I was like, fine. What did you hear at school? And what did they tell you? <laughs> and then he gave me this very wonderful medical explanation around how like, you know, it's usually a man and a woman. Well, in this term, right? Like a female right. body and a male body, he said. And like they get naked and they join together. The, the penis goes into the vagina and then they married hug. He did use married hug. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
and they make a baby. And I was like, okay, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I'm really Uh working on being better. Like I drew was Mm -hmm. really proud with a conversation we had like Uh last week where I was like, I didn't turn 30 shades of red and send him your way. Like I was like, okay, we're going to talk about this. So I'm Mm -hmm. working on it, but it's my own Catholic guilt, shame, (laughs) my own (laughs) parents and their shame around sex that they taught me. So, um, yeah, I too, I would be really uncomfortable if Daniel were like, mom, what is, I would be like, why are you asking me? That's private. Um, Mm. Because I think he literally thought that Jose and I only, my spouse, and I only had sex once to have him. So um, as he gets older, he's like, wait, what? Like that? Or if he hears my mom say, or he's asked me like, why didn't I have more siblings? Like you should have married hugged once and that would have happened. And then he'll hear like, I tried for a decade and my, you know what I mean? And it didn't, I wasn't able to get pregnant again. So he's sort of piecing together these Uh stories. Um, Uh But yeah, no, Drew's right. I was under the table a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I want to say, first of all, I, good for you. (laughs) Like, I think that I really want to tell the story about, about the story I heard about how babies are made from school. But, but what I first want to say is what I, I've decided is super valuable just in every adult child's interaction is for adults to be able to go back and say, I don't think I handled that the way that I should have, or like, maybe I didn't give you all the information you wanted or to say like, I was really embarrassed by that conversation and I'm sorry. I wish that I'd been able to tell you more than married hugs. I just wasn't (laughs) sure. Like I wasn't sure. And I have my own upbringing and I, I really sorry. And I want to do better in the future, you know? And I, I think like that is so powerful to a kid to have an adult say, I might have been wrong about that. Um, And I think it's also okay to ask, like, if you want to know about my sex life when I was your age, can you explain to me what you're, like, why you want to know? What are you trying to understand? Because that might give you some information that you don't have, right? Like, I want to know if you were in love before you were in love with my other parent or like, what did it feel like when you were my age? Did you want to have sex? Cause I don't know if I do. And that feels weird, right? Like there's lots of things that kids are trying to understand through the adults in their lives. And that's our role is to kind of try and help give them information to make the world make sense. Um, so I think that can be really powerful to go back and say, okay, you asked me this and I didn't really want to tell you, but <laughs> I think maybe it's useful for you to know. Right. Yeah. No, and- we've, Luckily, we've had that conversation because he'll tease me yeah. now, right? Like, he's like, yeah, mom, <laughs> that was really wrong. Uh, and and I've told him, too, like, I've never been a mom before, so you're my first try, and I'm going to make some errors. Right. But, totally. yeah, no, you're right. It's powerful. And every time, like, I cringe when he tells that because you think you're going to be better than that parent. Yeah. But no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do the best you can in the moment. But that's <laughs> That's what's true. I think the other, this is the other thing about sex education that I wish people got was that people have sex because it feels good, right? Uh, Like if that wasn't so left out of sex education, then kids would never think that their parents only had sex the one, you know, one to seven times, depending on how many kids are in the family, (laughs) because they would know like when you mush body parts with nerve endings together, it feels really good. So you want to keep mushing them. Usually if everybody's into the mushing, it feels really good. Right. And so like, I mean, we, we masturbate ourselves to orgasm in utero, like babies really? in utero have orgasms. Yes. 
I had no. So, like we are. <laughs> You're like blowing my mind. Touching our genitals, like wow. we're born doing that, is really normal, and we stop doing it because we we're taught that it's shameful or dirty or disgusting, right? The way parents respond to little children touching their genitals is usually like, "Stop that! That's disgusting! Get your hand out of there!" Do you want people to think you're the kid with her hand in her pants, right? Like. That's because we're taught that genitals are dirty when actually they are self-cleaning, self-healing organisms. Like yeah. they're remarkable. Like genital piercings clean themselves. You don't have to clean those things like you should, but you don't have to because your genitals clean themselves. It's wow. amazing. Yes, it's amazing. Clearly, I need I'm a just... sex ed class because I'm like blown away by all the things you're sharing. <laughs> I think genitals are so cool. They're so cool. They're just like weird magic little bundles that we all have. I don't know. It's super cool. Sorry, I'm really into the liver, so, and the kidneys. Yeah. I mean, bodies are, really, when you think about it, bodies are completely magical. Like, how do we walk? That's amazing. Like, so many things happen to make you walk. It's incredible. Mm. And we do it without thinking about it. It's incredible. Yeah. It's really interesting. There's a bunch of things that we've talked about here that I'm thinking about would probably really surprise your average conservative i've never had a talk with anyone about these things and this is how i see what people on the quote unquote on the other side are talking about is like and this combination of you're talking about the importance of families being able to talk to each other about Mm. about things not that it should be in the school not that the government should be doing sex ed classes but honestly Families should be able to talk about this. Mm. And um, there's the thing that made me think of this was something that you just said, oh, the wonder of the body. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I mean, there's something about the way bodies work that I, that I look at and I'm like, wow, this mm. all fits together somehow mm-hmm. in ways that we don't 100% understand which actually almost makes me think more about higher powers right (laughs) it doesn't make me even more of an atheist (laughs) it actually (laughs) makes me think about like wow who like what that was great design to you know Mm -hmm. this to put nerve endings not just on the clitoris but also outside of it so that Mm -hmm. there's pleasure in other areas Mm mm-hmm I mean, I was going to add to the wonder of the body and just say the other thing that's like, I think there there are some ridiculous t-shirts or bumper stickers to this effect, but the first time I thought I was like, yeah, our arms are exactly the right length for masturbation. I mean, yes, it's true that, yes, Like, we're not T-Rexes. Yeah, we like have complete access. Are we recording right now? Yes, we are actually, and I'm glad oh, that we good. were. Was, I'm sorry. <laughs> is that okay? Um, no, I, I. That is such a great concept. If we had Tyrannosaurus Rex arms, it would be really difficult. It would be. It would be so different. I mean, so what is also, that, which then also brings up my whole area where I also get very like, oh, I wish there was better on this. Is sex for people who have disabilities. Oh, I mean, I I can connect you to some really amazing sex disability activists, though, because that is like, yeah, I think that's such an important conversation to be having as well, Uh, and that you don't have to have arms that reach your genitals in order to be able to masturbate. Um, So. No, it's just, it's amazing to me, and it's, it's one of these things, again, I mean, this is, on this podcast, Lizette and I have talked a lot about how 
it's all these boats that we just need to hook together going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to things like this with, you know, with knowing about sex, knowing about our bodies, the number of people who are excluded from the traditional conversation is huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone thinks that, you know, people of size are not having mm-hmm. and are not having sex. Old people yeah. aren't having sex. Yeah. And oh, I'm sure this yeah. must be one of those things that makes you pull your hair out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and I hear it because what I hear is people having trouble with their own self or body or aging or disability because they've absorbed that or size because they've absorbed that so much that. Um, you know, now that I'm older, my sex life is over. Now that I've gained weight, nobody's ever going to want to have sex with me again because they've absorbed it so much. And, and I see it in, the, in this very one-to-one way, which in some ways is very difficult because who am I, right? I'm one other person saying that's not true. And luckily I can direct people to communities or encourage them to, you know, to read or, you know, research and sort of get a different perspective. But I do. I hear it in in all of these one on one conversations in so many aspects of sexuality and um, so many experiences that are left out of sexuality conversations and sex ed. I mean, sexual fantasy is a whole uh, like part of sex therapy that I'm so fascinated by that we also never get taught anything about. Right? Nobody ever talks about having sexual fantasies. Um, and it's fascinating the things that people fantasize about is just fascinating and how much distress people can have about that is also so significant in, in working in sexuality um, that if I can get people to talk to me about even vaguely about their sexual fantasies, it's almost always an incredibly healing event for people because how often do you do that except maybe with a partner if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly we don't, we don't talk about that stuff. Um, I think in some communities more than others, but you know, I don't know how many people either of you has told your sexual fantasies to, and I bet there are ones that you haven't, right? Even if you yeah. have, there are ones we also hold very private because we're, they feel so personal or we're so afraid of what it might sound like to someone else or that they might be misunderstood or we're ashamed or embarrassed or confused about them. I'm like, Melissa, um, do we talk about that? Really? I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I'm, my husband and I are very healthy and, and active, but no, I'm just teasing, but I had to bring that into the conversation. It's true. It's true. There is a lot of like, um, I think a lot of people are raised to feel weary, to open up and share. Um, but in order to have a healthy, loving partnership, you have to be willing to have those conversations and bring joy to each other. And so, um, but if you were raised like me, it's so uncomfortable to get there. Right. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh-huh. And I, luckily I was raised, my spouse was raised like uber Catholic. So he and I giggle a lot about this. Cause he's like, uh-huh. I know it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm like, I know it's so weird. Right. <laughs> so we have all these conversations about like how we were like taught fear, um, and you know, and just the idea of shame around something that should be celebrated or enjoyed, um, is always like the hard obstacle. <laughs> you know, what's yeah. interesting though, with that is when I hear this is, so I hear about, and I, I definitely didn't have the average experience because I had my mom the night before she got married, got a note on her pillow from my grandmother saying, perhaps you should see a gynecologist. <laughs> and that was the extent of her sex ed. Oh, oh, wow. Which meant that she and my dad were good um, flower children. Who, like, we knew everything from a very young age about the parts and that it was fun and that it was good. But 
we didn't learn about all of this area of like the feelings around it. Mm-hmm. And about other than that, it's good. And so the times it wasn't good, it was like, oh, that must mm-hmm. not be sex, or that mm-hmm. must you know, there's something is wrong with me because of it. And it is just mm-hmm. it's fascinating because even though we were so open about everything, the number of years we got condoms in our stockings for Christmas was really <laughs> oh, oh my goodness all the time. <laughs> oh, there was one Christmas that I got a book, Youth and Sex. Um, which is the first time I had seen a picture of a man's penis with hair around it. Nowadays, probably wouldn't. Um, and then, um, my older brother, um, got a book. He got joy of sex. My parents gave each other more joy of sex. Right. Um, and that was Christmas morning. Oh, for nice day. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I'm like trying but, to think about what that what that would have felt been like for me, but no, my parents were like never talk about that ever. <laughs> oh. But none of those things actually talked about things like negotiating sexual boundaries mm-hmm. or talking about fantasies or mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't that stuff. It was like all the mechanics. Well, I mean, the more joy of sex had a lot of drawings yeah yeah i love i just looking back at that book now i'm thinking like wow all the artist renditions yeah they had a lot of pubic hair in the joy of sex like so much pubic hair yeah it's like a whole different world well i'm sure that that pubic hair is back now that we've had covid because it was you couldn't get in with your like waxers and so a lot of us are very natural now that's such a good point i love that that it's going to be this comeback i think body hair in general i went to get a pedicure the other day and my sister was like i shaved my legs probably for the first time this year and I was like, oh, I decided to sort of give up shaving my legs forever. It is an inherently racist practice. And I also am tired. <laughs> so I think we're just, maybe we just like embrace body hair, all of it now. I mean, I haven't shaved in like months and I haven't gone. I mean, I, I used to go get waxed regularly and I haven't gone uh, because of COVID. So like, yeah, I'm just living life like in yeah. the 80s right now. Why not? <laughs> it's that whole thing where, like, you can, if you can get something to be a habit over the course of a year, then maybe it should mm. just stay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. The thing, yeah. too, that I'm loving with this, like, kind of, like, body positivity, sex positivity, you're seeing it on Instagram. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was, like, a whole month for the FUPA, which, if you don't know what the FUPA is, it's just, like, the tummy that yeah. hangs over, right? And there was, like, yeah. a whole month where this was celebrated, and I saw women of all sizes, plus size, people of all sizes, um, you know, being sensual and wearing things mm-hmm. that were really sexy and feeling good about themselves. And for me, I was like, oh, this is empowering as a 41-year-old to see people really kind of live in their bodies. Cause I feel like that's a tough place to be. Mm. Melissa's like probably thinking all these clinical things about me. 
no, I'm, def- I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. What I was thinking, though, what this brings me back to is the idea of, of trans and gender diverse kids and, like, how they learn about sex. And, and some of the, I mean, there are obviously things about the Internet that, that bother me, but there are also some beautiful things. And I think about, like, what you were saying, Drew, that you had all of this kind of sex, positive sex education, and there were also things that it didn't prepare you for. And I'm thinking about, like, my queer self, my queer body, my queer love, and that it's, like, I never, ever got anything modeled that was anything like what my life is like. I didn't know that someone like me existed. Mm. And I had to figure that out from zero, pretty much. Luckily, I read a lot, and I went to Sarah Lawrence in the 90s, so, like, I got a whole world of education. (laughs) But, like, kids come to therapy now knowing, like, we had conversations in my job in Springfield. I ran a team of clinicians that were trained in um, gender-affirming care and also because I'm the sex-positive therapy. And we had a lot of conversations about, like, what do you do when a 13-year-old comes to therapy and is talking to you about their BDSM relationship and you're like dude you're 13 and I don't know like is it good is it bad I'm not sure what to think we had a lot of these conversations as therapists and I'm like but you know part of me is like but those kids are not going to spend the next five to ten years wondering what's wrong with them because of the things that might turn them on right Mm -hmm. so like we're here to help kids figure out how to do it like safely healthily with consent like differentiate between whether it's a fantasy that feels good or a reality that feels good without getting themselves into a really bad situation, right? Like we can do that for kids if they come and tell us this stuff. And even though it's sometimes I'm like, oof, you're young. I'm like, okay, but I'm here for it because I didn't know so much, you know, and I just had to figure it out. And a lot of things happened that I really, I can't say I wish they hadn't happened because I'm me and I'm happy being me. But I went through some pain in trying to figure it out, right? Trying to differentiate for myself, like who I was, what I wanted, what other people wanted, what I just thought was sexy versus what was actually sexy in real life. Um, like all of that took so much work because yeah. I, the, the things that I think are sexy are not things I ever saw in mainstream life. And I think the internet can, while it can be a dangerous place, I suppose, it also, I know, it also can be this like beautiful opportunity for people not to have that horrible like confusion and isolation and body shame and sex shame, right? Yeah. Um, or and the- I see that a lot. Or having, you know, just been in bad situations where like, I mean, I know I I have a handful of bad college stories, right? Where you're just like, Mm -hmm. if I had had the awareness that I have today, I would have made different choices. Um, You know, this idea that you can say no at any time, right? I think Mm -hmm. that that is Mm -hmm. a genderless issue. I think that, that that's an element of, of consent that is not talk, discussed, honestly, is that like totally. at any time you can say no, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it'd yeah. be okay. Um, yeah. And I hear my son having those conver- having those conversations around consent and what does that mean? I mean, I, I feel like he's got a, I got a good care team for him. I'm sad Drew is leaving, but we have like a therapist and I'm working on my mm. own cringiness, but I do I want them. <laughs> I want uh, him and other people to feel like that there's, that they, they have control over themselves and the, yeah. the choices that they make, you know, and the, yeah. and the, the, you know, interactions that they choose, the sexual interactions Mm -hmm. they choose to have, that they can feel empowered. Um, Because I think we all have a handful of those stories where you're like, oh, yeah. 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 We probably should do our closing moments. Just notice the time. Um, So let's see. 
Lizette, you always word this better than I do. The the three, okay. The questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So, Melissa, if you could give us three practical things that you feel would help foster community, what would those three mm. things that our listeners could do today? And it could be around this topic of, like, how to, you know, create sex positivity in your communities, or it could just be ones that you feel are really important around, you know, just being a better person, more inclusive person. <sighs> Three things, huh? Okay, I don't know if I have three. So, I mean, the, the things, here's here's the fact about me is that I'm a significant introvert. Um, I, I like being alone. I have the job that I have because I sit in one room with one person for one hour, right? I'm not in a crowd of people. And I think when I think about community, the thing that is important for me to think about with community is who I am in that community. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like, something that's really important and often overlooked is our comfort with ourselves. Um, and instead of seeking comfort in others, it is important to also be able to comfort ourselves. And I feel like there's some skill in that that needs to be taught and fostered. And, you know, I, I, all my, um, clients make fun of me because I'm always like meditate, write in a journal. And they're like, I meditated, I wrote in a journal, but I mean, the things, those are the things that help me understand myself where I'm at. Um, but, but sort of figuring out like who you are in those those moments when you're with other people is going to make those community moments when you have them feel so much more fulfilling than if you're needing other people to give you something you can't give yourself. So I, that when I think about community, that's what I think about is, is how can I be okay, be my own community. And the other thing that, so I really probably only have two because the other thing that I think about is um, when I am feeling isolated, the thing that helps me, especially as an introvert who doesn't like to go out in public and, big groups of people. I know a lot about my history as a, as a queer non-binary femme person mm-hmm. um, and having history and learning more about history to me, like the history of my people um, keeps me from ever feeling alone because I have people behind me who are like me, you know, and I think outside of whether I have family who's chosen or family of origin or community members where I live, or if I move someplace without community, I always know that I have people who came before me who are, who are like me. Um, and that to me is, is a really like grounding um, part of my life that I also would love people to have more of, right? To find your history, the history of, of who you are or how you are, I think can be such a helpful um, way to feel something other than isolated to feel connected. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. You have, and just, then I, you have just turned a key and a lock for me. Um, I have struggled so much with, I have a lot of kids who... Um, don't have a trans community around them mm-hmm. um, because they are significant introverts or mm-hmm. they are on the spectrum and it's really hard for mm-hmm. them or they have some, a lot of internalized transphobia mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and this do it having them like take a look at some of the re- books and do some research so that your picture is of history and you can see yourself as part of something so much bigger would help the isolation a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, that. Yeah. I mean, a good starting place. It's a book, which also people make fun of me for, but what can I say? I'm middle-aged. Um, Susan Stryker has a great book called transgender history. That's like such a great starting yeah. place. Um, but yeah, there's so much out there. There are great documentaries. There are great podcasts. 
Yeah. I made that part of my mission. Daniel is like, sometimes teases me. He's like, you know more about queer history than I do. But I made it part of my mission to really kind of um, be a better advocate for him and Mm. for our family. And so um, I agree, Susan Stryker's book, and she's a professor here uh, locally. Mm. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right. And I love Making Gay History, the podcast. I'll send Daniel Mm. episodes all the time. Um, But yeah, there's more information than than I thought there would be. Yeah. 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 Okay, and now our next question. Oh, did you want to say something, Drew? No, I'm going to let you do it. I was like, and what is our next question? (laughs) (laughs) Who inspires you this week? So again, as an introverted person, this this is what's true about the career that I have and the life that I live. I came into being a therapist later in life. Like I said, I went to graduate school when I was 38. I have spent the past two or so weeks um, with a lot of new clients at my new job in taking people. The people who come to me for therapy are such an inspiration to me. I mean, that's just what's true. It's For me, it's usually a, a personal day-to-day. And to sit in a room with somebody who just met me, who tells me the truth about themselves or their life, who decides to trust me, um, who's vulnerable to me, um, I, it just is, there's something so incredibly beautiful and powerful and moving about that, um, willingness that people have and just really humbling that I don't know why, but you are choosing to give that to me today. It's such a beautiful thing. And it just, whenever I feel like, you know, I'm not strong enough or brave enough or vulnerable enough, I, I think about that and it just, it's, it is such an inspiration to me. It's the thing that keeps me going even on the, the hard days or the days where my job, you know, is a lot or I'm very tired or the world is, is dark or painful. It's just people come into the room with me and are just so beautiful, so resilient, just like teach me something every single day. And I just feel like so much gratitude that I found the career that I did and that I, I get to be present for that with people. It is like a truly inspiring for me every single day. I love that. Awesome. Drew, how about you? So, um, mine's, mine's a little, um, <laughs> less, less of a happy inspiration. Um, but That's I, okay. so watching yet another trial, um, mm-hmm. about the murder of a black man at the hands of the police. I see the men who are going on the mm-hmm. stand and being witnesses who I know there's this narrative that people of color, one of the problems is they don't participate in police mm-hmm. actions and stuff like that. And so that's why this stuff happens. And it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, to see these men sit on the stand and answer questions about basically seeing themselves killed in front of themselves, mm. having to answer those questions to people knowing that their answers to the questions on the stand and that they're falling apart because of how emotional they are on the stand mm. probably will mean nothing. Mm. Um, th- that it probably won't result in anyone being held responsible Um for um, George Floyd's death, except for him. Mm-hmm. Um, like those guys, like that level of strength is incredible to me. The vulnerability um, has been powerful. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, 
how I hope that if I that I am going to look in the face of the incredible odds that they are facing there and be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also this week would shout out to my um, the trans parents and tra- and doctors of trans kids um, who I know in uh, Alabama and Arkansas mm-hmm. um, who are not lying in a corner being sad. They are not. A, they are getting ready for the fight. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, and they're getting ready for the fight and they're not using the second amendment for it. They're using a number of other amendments to our constitution that will help in this fight. Yeah. Um, and that will create some lasting lessons that the laws we're seeing are not going to be allowed to stand. Well. And Lizette, who do you admire this week? Mine's a first, but Melissa, I really admire you <laughs> this week. Thank you for sharing. I, I'm really like, um, this has been a wonderful episode. I was really nervous about it. And I really admire just like your passion around this subject and the work that you do. And it just is a reminder that I have some work to do. And so thank you for being here today. And I really admired everything that you said. I really am taking it all in. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm looking forward to slowly working my way through everyone in the office. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Every I time just, I talk to someone, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. I can't wait to be there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so I know. Sad. I can't wait for you to be there, too. A couple weeks. Well, thank you both. Well, thank you for this incredible episode and for having this really important conversation with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And I, I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. Thank and you. thank you, everyone who's listening. Have a great few couple of weeks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.